He was an extremely adroit crook and he would be in anything that turned a dollar. She could see a gun on the floor underneath Mr Kinnabarra's table and the publican said, don't worry about it, just go over, act natural, don't say much, just kick the gun under the table where no one can see it and pretend nothing's happened. I'm Andrew Rule. this is Life and Crimes. This week we're going to talk about a remarkable fellow, a much-loved member of the underworld until his passing, and that is the man they called the Munster. His real name is or was Graham Kinneborough, an interesting name because some people pronounce it Kinnenberg because that's what it looks like, but it's pronounced like the Scottish city, Edinburgh, so it's pronounced Kinneborough. And Graham Kinneborough, among all the other things he was, was a very good crook. And good crooks are what police call crooks who are very good at what they do, who don't generally hurt the ordinary citizen or police in the commission of their crimes. And he, uh, although he was a member of the underworld, the Melbourne underworld in particular, and the Australian underworld in general, for most of his 60 plus years, he didn't actually serve much jail time. And although he had convictions for things, you know, dishonesty, carrying a firearm, a little bit of assault, a little bit of receiving stolen goods, he'd served very little jail time because, in fact, he really didn't get arrested for the big stuff that he did. And the big stuff that he did was, by and large, safe-cracking. He was regarded by many good judges as one of the best safe-crackers there ever was. And we'll start off today with a new story about an old crook, because I've just heard a story about the Munster that has just surfaced interstate in the underworld. And a source of uh, this podcast told us just last week about one of the things that the Munster got away with, one of the many things he got away with. And this one sort of caught our attention because there's something rather dashing about it. In 1981, a prospector, a man with a metal detector, went out to a district called Mosquito Creek, which is near Wedderburn in Victoria's Gold Triangle. And there he looked around for gold using his metal detector, and he came up with a wonderful find, which was later called the Pride of Australia. And this was a gold nugget of some 256 ounces, which really put it up among the bigger nuggets found anywhere in the world. There have, of course, been several bigger ones, but this was one of the bigger ones found in Australia since World War II. Most of the big nuggets were found back in the 19th century. And this lucky prospector, lucky punter, produces this nugget, and gold nuggets are actually worth more than their weight in gold because they are relatively unusual. They are regarded as collectibles. And in this instance, the State Savings Bank of Victoria, which uh, existed in those days before its downfall, it paid the prospector a large amount of money for the nugget. That large amount of money was probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars, which at that time would have been the price of you know several houses. And so the State Bank of Victoria, as a grand gesture, gave the gold nugget, known as the Pride of Australia, to the people of Victoria to celebrate Victoria's 
150th anniversary. And the nugget was duly deposited in the Museum of Victoria, or what we call the Melbourne Museum. And it was there placed in a highly secure environment where people could walk past in this very secure area and see the nugget through this very secure perspex or glass or whatever it was. And they knew that it was very safe because it was under lock and key at the museum. Sadly, however, the thieves who broke into the museum in 1991 and stole the nugget didn't believe it was quite so secure. It was a great mystery who took the nugget, but it was a news story that died very quickly. There were brief news stories the next day, nugget stolen, nugget worth lots of money, police searching for leads, and then that story just died. It sunk like a stone, and there was no more heard about the missing nugget for many a long day. The police had no idea where it went, or if they did, they didn't pursue it. And we heard no more about it, and like many other Victorians, I'd forgotten all about it until last week when a contact who lives in Queensland said to me, oh, do you know about that gold nugget that was knocked off from the museum in Victoria? And I said, not offhand, and he explained to me what it was and when it was. And he said, you know who took that? And I said, no idea. He said, the Munster took it. And I know that for a fact. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, I know that for a fact, because the Munster told my friend Doug, that's his real name, my friend Doug, all about how he did it. He did it very simply. He got into the museum by some means, and he just smashed his way into the case with a sledgehammer, grabbed the nugget, disappeared, and hid the nugget for many years until the heat had died off. And then he offered it to my friend Doug. Now, I don't really know what happened then, whether the nugget changed hands and was melted down into jewellery or gold bars or what happened to it. But that is the true story of what happened to the Pride of Australia gold nugget. And that tells us a lot about the late Graham Kinneborough. He was an extremely adroit crook and he would be in anything that turned a dollar. And he was involved in some of the biggest heists in this country, and we'll look at those in a minute. And also, at street level, he would also be involved in day-to-day sort of stuff like receiving stolen goods and selling it out of the boot of the car or out of a side room at the Clare Castle Hotel in Port Melbourne, back in the old days when it was under different management, of course. Or indeed, from the upstairs rooms in various suburban motels around the place where he would sit outside the motel concerned in his Mercedes or whatever he's driving or in fact sometimes in a second-hand Falcon because it didn't uh, attract any attention and he would sit there with his mobile telephone and he would keep knit, keep guard and he'd be in touch with his very good friend Byron Panzanis who is no longer with us either. Byron would handle the stolen goods such as uh, clothing and jewellery And various people around town, some of whom I know, some people who should know better, they would go up into these uh, temporary (laughs) pop-up shops where they could buy hot stuff for half price. And they would buy these beautiful boutique clothes, tweed jackets, uh, leather shoes, whatever it was, jewellery, 
for half price. And then the Munsters Travelling Emporium would move on to another motel or another hotel or another place in another suburb and the show would go on. One of the Munsters' favourite haunts was the Clare Castle Hotel in Port Melbourne. We don't suggest that the Clare Castle currently has a clientele like this, but back in the day, in his heyday, let's say the 1990s, he was often seen in there. And one day, a waitress, who might have been new to the pub, was very concerned and she came over to the publican and whispered that she could see a gun on the floor underneath Mr Kinnebarra's table. And the publican said, don't worry about it, just go over, act natural, don't say much, just kick the gun under the table where no one can see it and pretend nothing's happened. And that's exactly what she did. She went over, she kicked the gun under the table, the monster heard it, bent down without drawing breath and picked the gun up and popped it in his pocket and went on as normal. Meanwhile, his trusty sidekick, Byron Panzanis, was in the room next door selling this week's run of hot goods, hot clothes and jewellery. Our listeners might remember that Byron Panzanis is a little-known but highly trusted crook. He's no longer with us, which is why we can talk about him so frankly, but that he was in fact the man trusted with buying the yacht that Tony Mockbell used to sail away from Western Australia to get to Greece many years later. So Byron Penzanis was a highly trusted fixer around the Melbourne underworld until he um, died of natural causes. I hope he died of natural causes. But in between doing just that average sort of stuff, for which he was never caught, as far as I know, for several decades, Graham Kinneborough would now and again plan or have something to do with a very large heist. It is thought, it is not proven, but it is thought that some of his locksmithing expertise might have percolated through the underworld and assisted in that remarkable crime back in the 90s, the uh, Great Richmond Heist, which of course we've discussed on this podcast in the past, and that is the heist where a crew disguised as a roadworks gang would set up with a stop-go sign and various tools and things pretending to be doing roadworks down on the access lane to the southeastern freeway at Cremorne, which is the corner of Richmond right near the Yarra River where the uh, Nilex clock is. And that wonderful heist where they took many millions of dollars from an armoured car was only able to be done because somehow the crooks, the robbers, magically had a key to the lock in the back of the armoured car. And they were able to jump in the back of the armoured car using this key and overpower the driver and the armed guards inside the armoured car. Most of our listeners are familiar with that case because we've been through it before, but it is widely held that some of the people that the Munster Kinneborough knew may well have assisted in that crime. And this just goes to show the sort of influence that he had in the underworld. And I would suggest that he was probably regarded as a consultant in many ways by those people who needed to do complex crimes. He was famously or infamously a member of what was called the Magnetic Drill Gang. Now, they pulled various big jobs, but one huge one 
was at Mwilumbar in coastal New South Wales in 1978. Now, what the gang did there was to use this highly sophisticated magnetic drill, which is something only used by you know specialist engineers. And that drill, to put it simply, was able to be used to drill it precisely so the robbers could then use sophisticated surgical equipment so they could then listen to and look at the tumblers inside the safe and work on it, rather like surgeons doing microsurgery. So they were able to combine, because of their genius and their technical skill, the techniques and the gear used by very sophisticated engineers and by surgeons to crack this particular safe in this particular town on this particular night in 1978. The beautiful thing was they had inside information that for some reason the Mwilumbar branch of the whatever bank it was had a hell of a lot of money in it that particular night. It was holding a lot of cash for some reason and so instead of getting you know $50,000 I think they got a couple of million and that in 1978 was a lot of money. They also knocked over a Sydney bank in 1983, and between those two jobs, they are thought to have scored some $7 million. Now, that sort of dough back then, as we all know, was huge. I can recall people buying and selling houses in the 70s for between twelve dollars and $20,000. I can remember buying a house in the early 80s for $26,000 and other people buying houses for thirty dollars and $40,000. So seven million bucks in that era was a fantastic amount of money and leads me to think that Graham Kinnebarra's share of the profits would have kept him going for many a long year because he wasn't one to waste his money the way most crooks do. He was one who invested fairly wisely. And I'm told by my old associate and sometime friend Barry Michael, a former world junior lightweight boxing champion, great Melbourne boxer back in that era, that when he was training for a big fight back in the 80s, he was training in a gym set up in a building in Flinders Lane in the city. And it was all set up at the expense of the Munster, Graham Kinneborough, because the Munster was a great sponsor and uh, a great patron of the sweet science of boxing. And as such, he felt that he should look after Barry Michael, the hometown boy, and he set up this gym for him to train in. It also helped, of course, that he had good inside mail and that when Barry thought that he could win a fight against the odds, the Munster would back him heavily because the Munster was, if nothing else, a highly educated punter. He was one of those guys that bookmakers feared because he had what they call in bookmaker circles smart money or tough money. And when he put the money on something, by and large, it would win because the Munster didn't like to waste his hard-earned dough and he liked to put his money on sure things. And his way of doing that was to cultivate over many years various people in the racing industry as well as in boxing, And he was, I understand, it is rumoured, 
the godfather of at least one jockey's child. We won't mention the jockey because he still has a very responsible job in the racing industry, so we won't mention him, but he was a, an extremely well-known and an extremely skilled jockey. And sometimes that little tiny jockey, who was a baby-faced, good-looking fellow, would be seen eating a small portion, uh, perhaps a child's portion, of Chinese food at Choi's very fine restaurant in Riversdale Road, Hawthorne. Choi's, of course, is a marvellous restaurant where all our listeners should go because if it was good enough for the Munster and his favourite jockey to go to, it is the perfect place to celebrate any occasion. And um, our family often goes there because it's so good at Choi's. The Munster, of course, had a restaurant for every occasion. He would go to Choi's with that jockey because that jockey lived uh, on that side of town. But sometimes he would be friendly with other jockeys and after attending the races at Flemington or at Mooney Valley, he would tend to go to his favourite restaurant on that side of town, which was not as smooth but a very good restaurant. That was the famous Jimmy Wong's at Footscray, sometimes known as Johnny Wong when we want to disguise it. But he would go there because the dim sims were remarkably good. They were homemade on the premises. And the Munster, although he might have, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 in cash about his person, he would go there just to buy the dim sims. And often he would take one or two of his favourite jockeys and he'd say, good boy, and he would hand them a large wad of cash as they had their dim sims at Jimmy Wong's. On other occasions, it is well known that on high days and holidays, when he was entertaining more lavishly, he would go to the flower drum in the city. And somebody said to him once, what have you done with all your money? Graham, you know, you've made a lot of money over the years and you've, you've won a lot of money on the races over the years. How have you spent it? And he said, well, he said, it's hard to say. He said, I know for a fact I've eaten about 50 grand's worth of fried rice. <laughs> a troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. There are many stories about the Munster, often revolving around the fact that he was sort of an avuncular figure. He was a fairly friendly sort of man. I mean, clearly he was a crook. Clearly he was pretty heavy. Clearly he could get you hurt if you upset him. But a lot of people who met him in a social setting, such as at the races, would think of him as a polite man, a man who didn't, you know, use bad language in front of women and uh, didn't sort of throw his weight around. He was pleasant to talk to and quite friendly and interested in other people. And he once was very charming to a lady at the races at the Caulfield Cup who was most taken with the fact that he said, look, I've got to leave now. I'm sorry, but it's my birthday and I've got to go home early from the races because my wife, Sybil, his um, wife was called Sybil and uh, he'd been married to her a very long time. My wife, 
Sybil is having a birthday gathering of the family and I must not be late. And this lady was most taken with this nice man and she said to somebody with her who was a former policeman, isn't he a lovely man? And he said he is a lovely man, the policeman said. But uh, you'd be surprised to know he's one of Australia's finest safecrackers. And she didn't believe him. But he was. On another occasion, he was at the races and the news had just broken that there was a huge heist that had gone off, a big robbery of some sort. And it made the Munster quite nostalgic. And he looked at the ex-detective and he said, you know, I was the best at that one time. And there was a small pause. And the ex-detective looked at him and said, Graham, they tell me you're still the best. And the Munster said, turn it up, mate, and walked away. Yeah, not many wise guys are actually wise, but Graham Kinnebarra was. And by and large, he got away with it for decades until he didn't get away with it anymore. And really, he ended up being collateral damage in the uh, infamous underworld war, the one we call the Underbelly War or the Gangland War, because he was shot dead in a hit commissioned by a narcissistic lunatic with too much money and not enough brains, and that is like Carl Williams. And how it happened was this. There was the Underworld War, and basically that was a, re- a revenge campaign conducted by Carl Williams against the Moran family and all their real or perceived supporters and friends. And what Carl Williams did was basically pick off anyone that he thought was associated with the Morans. And Graham Kinnebarra had known the Morans for many years, and he had knocked around with what were known as the Carlton crew, Alphonse Gangitano and Mick Gatto and those sort of guys. And so when Carl Williams was commissioning hits, thinking that he was, you know, the big gangster in Melbourne, he called himself the Premier because, you know, he said, I run this state and all that sort of mad stuff. He couldn't actually get to Lewis Moran when he wanted to. He soon did, but he couldn't get to him soon enough. And so he sent his paid hitman to knock off Graham Kinneborough. Now, Kinneborough was obviously smart enough to know that this was a possibility that this could happen. It is said that in the previous few weeks, he had started for the first time in many years to carry a gun, but he hadn't stopped his habit of getting around at night. He was very nocturnal and he used to go out at night and see people and talk to people. And then he'd get home late at night. And on this occasion, he gets home on a Friday night, which was turning at midnight into Saturday, the 13th of December in 2003. And he got home just on midnight and his wife, Sybil, was upstairs in bed in their nice house in Belmont Avenue in Kew. And she heard some bangs, which she didn't realise what they were. They were gunshots. She actually went downstairs and looked out the door, didn't see anything, went back up to bed to read read her book and wait for Graham to come home. Little did she know that he was lying, dead or dying, in their own driveway. He'd been ambushed in his own driveway. He'd got out of his car, carrying an armload of groceries, being the good husband that he was. He was bringing them inside with his arms full, not a great thing if you're trying to stop yourself being shot. And uh, the bad guys jumped out with a gun 
uh, to shoot him. He managed to get a shot off himself. He dropped his groceries and fired a shot himself, but ineffectively because they shot him dead and he didn't shoot them. A car was found shortly afterwards burnt out in a a dead-end lane not far away. But uh, initially it was widely thought by everyone, including Mick Gatto and a lot of other people, the media and, and probably some police and others, that the hitman was probably Andrew Veneman, who had done many of the hits for Carl Williams. In fact, the police were able to prove later that that wasn't the case because they had phone taps, complex phone taps going, which showed that Veneman that night at that time was on the other side of the city. It was over on the western side of the city. The phone tracking technology that the police used showed that Veneman was elsewhere on that night. And in fact, it wasn't until a long time later that the police finally arrested the two people who were responsible for the death of Graham Kinneborough. It wasn't until 12 years after Kinneborough's death that the police arrested Stephen Asling at Geelong and charged him with the murder. In fact, it is believed that Asling had a co-offender, a bloke called Terence Blewett, but Blewett blew it badly because he was blown away within weeks of Kinneborough's murder. No one knew that when he vanished back in early 2004. Blewett vanishes in January 2004. No one knows what happened to him until the police, probably acting on information received, dug a very deep hole in a wreckage yard in Thomastown in 2016. It would appear that Asling, the prime mover, has accepted the contract to kill Kinnabara back in 2003, that Blewett has been his uh, driver or or somehow helped him, and that, as happens when uh, friends fall out, that Asling, the cold killer, killed his associate to stop him talking about it, probably is what happened, which is further proof that loose lips sink ships and the underworld is a very dangerous place because generally there is no honour among thieves. So uh, those who live by the gun die by the gun. Graham Kinnebarra hadn't actually lived by the gun. He occasionally carried a gun but didn't really like gun play. He liked to stay away from it because he realised that no joy came from it. It attracted attention. It attracted violence. It attracted police who were very against crooks running around shooting people. And so mainly his offending was done without using guns. That doesn't mean that he had never used one. It is suggested in some quarters, in fact, that the mystery shooting of an armed robber called Stephen Sellers in a motel in South Yarra late last century was down to Graham Kinneborough. Some say that Stephen Sellers had fallen out with key people in the Melbourne underworld and that it was someone who looked like Kinneborough who blew him away with a shotgun back in the heyday of Russell Mad Dog Cox. So while the Munster wasn't big on guns and gunplay, he was present at one very notable gangland murder, and that is the shooting of Alphonse Gangatano 
at his home in Lower Templestowe back in 1998. And we know he was present because of two reasons. One is there's forensic evidence to that effect. Blood matching his was found on a screen door at the Gangatano residence. And it is widely theorised, although, uh, of course, the Munster never confirmed it, that he got such a shock when the other guest there that night, Jason Moran, shot their host, Alphonse Gangatano, that Kinnaburra ran towards the front door, hit the screen door so hard that he cut his finger, leaving a little bit of blood on the screen, and then left the house, went to a local convenience store, and made sure that he bought a packet of cigarettes or chewing gum or something, and uh, was there long enough that the security cameras in the convenience store would record his presence, his face, and the time in order to give himself an alibi uh, so that he could later say, well, I was at the house, but I went down the street to get a packet of smokes and was out of the house, and I have no idea who shot Alphonse because uh, no one else was there when I was there. It is said that while he was at the convenience store, he looked out the window while killing time and saw Alphonse's de facto wife, a long-suffering woman who was the mother of a couple of Alphonse's children, uh, drive past and he thought, oh no, this is bad. She's going to go there and um, see the body. So he drives back to the house to be there to help her when she finds the body and he was able to comfort her and make the necessary arrangements and generally assist in that tragedy, which is probably nothing to do with him. Uh, It would appear that Jason Moran was hot-headed. He was always armed. When he had arguments, he was a bit inclined to want to pull out guns and finish the argument that way. And it is known that he was appearing at that time in court with Gangatano over a very ugly incident in a Melbourne nightclub and that perhaps they had argued strongly over how to run their defence. And so they probably had a falling out and presumably Jason Moran went for the pistol before Alphonse Gangatano could get his pistol, which was hidden in the hall cupboard, hidden under the towels and sheets. It is a tribute to Graham Kinneborough's standing in Melbourne and the Melbourne underworld that when he was shot, it happened in the same news cycle as the capture of Saddam Hussein in the Middle East. And this was world news. But in Melbourne, the shooting of the Munster was almost as big a story as the capture of Saddam Hussein. I was in Russia, in St. Petersburg, on that occasion, on that date, and as I was reading the headlines about Saddam Hussein, my telephone went, and it was a friend of mine in Melbourne Radio ringing me to tell me that the monster had been shot. So it it was very big news. His funeral was not held at the usual underworld church in West Melbourne, which is the one, the big church, I think it's called St Mary's Star of the Sea, near the Vic Market. That is where the mafia funerals are generally held and uh, many others. The Munster's funeral was in his home patch in Kew, the Sacred Heart Church 
not far from his house there. The eulogy was given by the former Pentridge Prison chaplain, Father Peter Norton, and the main thrust of the eulogy was that strength is not measured down the barrel of a gun, which is true. That message was heard by all, but not taken to heart by one Mick Gatto, who was a pallbearer, because three months later, he shot the hitman Benji Veneman in what was, of course, a clear-cut case of self-defence. This week and every week, Life and Crimes is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. If you like the podcast and want to support it, go to heraldsun.com.au forward slash Andrew Rule and click on any article to begin. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.